Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, hopefully uh, you're getting to know me a little bit by now, and you know a question's probably coming, right? It's how I like to start. And so here's the one for today. And you might find it a little trite. You actually might be a little offended by it. But hang with me for a moment. Here's the question. Why are you here? No, I'm, I'm really quite serious about this. Why are you here? Someone turns to you right now and says, why are you here? What's your answer? Why are you here? What are you in church for today? What are you watching online for in this moment? You had other choices, at least most of you did. I'm looking at some in the front row here and some of the younger ones, maybe the choice was made for you by your parents, but one day you too will also have to answer this question for yourself. So I invite you to listen in. Why are you here? Some of you are thinking that perhaps you came to keep the peace in the family uh, and in so saying you think you had no choice, but in fact you did. You did. So why are you here? As you might guess, I've had a chance to think about this. That's the beauty in being the asker rather than the answerer. Uh, And uh, I think that if we were to boil it all down to all of our well-meaning answers and put them all in a pot, as we are here in the church, we will come to two reasons to which we express in various two-word combinations. When I was talking to Pastor Chris about this and starting this Back to Basics series at the end of June, and he suggested that I zero in on the church, right then and there, right while I was talking to him, God gave me a picture which I am going to share with you now. You see, we all come today wearing at least one hat of expectation, don't we? And better yet, two. Some of us have come with the expectation of giving, And some have come with the expectation of getting. Most of you, I hope, have come wearing the expectation hat of both of those things. We're here to give and we're here to get. Perhaps a nice way of saying that is that we're here to give and we're here to grow. I think even still a better way in the light of some of our series this year, it would be to say we've come to love and to learn. Far and above all other things, we're to love God and love people. So each time we gather provides us with opportunity to do, to give, if you will, exactly that. But we've also come to get, to learn, to receive, to hear from God lessons from his word and how we're to grow in becoming more like his son, Jesus, in our character, in our actions, and then apply it to our lives. When we come to church for the purposes of loving God and also receiving from him, there's another word that actually describes both these hats in one. It's the word worship. And so today I'd like to sort of uh, begin to unpack the wonder of worship, the wow factor, if you will. I want to talk to you over the next couple of weeks about how to live a life of worship, the wonder, the wonder of worship. Because worship is more than just singing or coming to church. Everybody worships something, you see. Some people worship idols. Some people worship themselves. Some people worship wealth, 
possessions, fame. Some people worship their jobs, careers. Some even worship their cars. Some worship rock stars. American Idol would be a good example. The problem is all these things, cars break down, so do rock stars. Everybody breaks down. In fact, they just all break down. There's nothing permanent about any of those things. So we use the same word, worship, but what does it really mean then to worship God? What does the Bible say about worship? What does it mean? What is God looking for when he invites us, asks us to come to him in worship? This is actually, of course, as you're probably already thinking, a very broad topic. And it requires, you know, a, kind of an overview today. And then in the weeks ahead, we'll, we'll take a few bits and pieces of it and break it down, unpack it a little bit. But the first question, of course, is what is worship? And here's a really short definition. I've, in the weeks ahead, I'll read you some longer ones, but here's a really short one. Worship is seeing God for who he really is, seeing ourselves for who we really are, and responding appropriately. We'll get to a verse that describes that a little later on. The Bible specifically tells us of at least eight expressions of worship, and they're just listed there for you. Singing, praying, giving, hearing the word, meditating, commitment, baptism, communion, and uh, you just saw one of those on the screen in baptism. Now, as Zach was saying, uh, these are things that are incumbent upon you to do is an acts of worship. Nobody can do them for you. And I put this on full screen there for just a second so that you would kind of get an idea of all those things. We'll put it on at the end of the service if you want to kind of write those things down. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, by the way. I think you could make a case that uh, um, serving in, in any capacity, if you're doing it in his name, you could, giving a cup of cold water in his name, you could make a case that anything you do in his name, as if Jesus was doing it, if he was there, this is what he, was be, he would be doing, you can make a case that those are acts of worship. So it's not meant to be exhaustive, but on the other hand, the Bible specifically mentions these things, so that's why we're going to pay attention to them. So the very first thing is to look at the word itself. Where do we get this word worship from, and what does it mean? Well, to get a grasp on that, we're going to start looking at the background of this word. And the first place, of course, is to look in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, and then the Greek, which is the language of the New Testament. The Hebrew word for worship is in the Old Testament means to bow down. I, if I say it, it's probably going to sound like I'm, I'm throwing up on stage here, so I'm just going to leave that. But... For worship in the Old Testament, it means to bow down. That's what worship is. We bow down before him. We're humble before him. All that he is. It's that sense of awe and wonder of who God is. The Greek word used most often is letreo, used 21 times, and it means something that you give your life to. It means you sort of, it, you, you invest all into it. If you have to put it in one word, it would be sacrifice. That's what worship is. It's giving ourselves to him, sacrifice. Combining the two gives us both humbling ourselves before him and our giving ourselves to him. It involves this sense of sacrifice in our life. Now, our English word worship actually comes from an old English word called worth-scripe. Worth-scripe. It means to declare worth. Or to put it simply, worth-ship. To declare worth worthship, to declare or attribute worth or value. So when we worship God, we're declaring his worthship. 
He's worthy, his worthiness to be worshiped. But that leads to a question. What is God worth? What is he worth to you? Because it's actually a value question about you personally. What is God worth to you? What is his value in your life? To the extent that you can discover his worth and his value, you will then become a worshiper of his. And you will express worship not just through the words that you say or the songs that you sing, but in your very life. You'll express worship by the way you live. It will flow out of everything about you. You can tell when a person worships, you can tell what they're worshiping by the way they live their life. You can tell what people worship by the decisions they make, by the values they keep, by the way they talk, by the way they think, how they spend their time, what they spend their money on. It's a reflection of what truly is going on on the inside and what they truly value or worship. If you want to know what somebody believes, how do they live their life? If you want to know what someone values, how do they live their life? If you want to know what somebody worships, you have to look at the way they live their life. Worship is more than just coming to church on a weekend. It's sort of like marriage. There's a relationship, a tie here. If only, the only time I ever give my wife, Jennifer, attention is like for a few hours. I, I, you know, I, talked about her, I talk about her abilities, her heart, what she's done, the person she is. If I just kind of do that for even a portion of an hour on a weekend, that's not much of a marriage. You have to put... You know, all of this together, you have to have the private worship. You have to have it happening more and more between the weekends. It's how you live all your life. That's what worship is. I want us to look at what this means. How do we live it all out? Because worshiping is something God asks us to do. He invites us to do it. We need, therefore, to kind of delve into a little bit and understand a bit of the why and the what, therefore. To get started... No better place to go, of course, than to go to Jesus himself. I think you'd agree with me that's always a good place to start. We're going to look at the longest recorded conversation, one-on-one -on -one conversation, that Jesus had with anybody in the Bible. The longest one. Now, before you start sending me notes, remember, Pastor Ray Yoder. That's, send it to Pastor Ray, Ray Yoder. Um, that's not me, by the way, but it's okay. Send it to him. Please note, I said one-on-one -on -one conversations. One-on-one -on -one conversations. Jesus spoke to multitudes, particularly in what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount, for a very, very long time. For long periods of time. But we're talking about a back-and-forth conversation, one-on-one. -on -one. This is it. This is the longest one. Anyone know where that is or what it was about? You'd think that the longest conversation that Jesus had with someone would be with a disciple. Perhaps you're racking your brain thinking, uh, was it one of the disciples? Was it Peter? Or maybe with one of the other religious leaders of the day, you know, the Pharisees, or was it Nicodemus? Or... But his longest recorded conversation was with a most unlikely person. Even more than that, he was in an unlikely location. He was in Samaria, a region where no self-respecting Jewish person would be caught dead. And to put icing on top of the unlikeliness of it all, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman in broad daylight, which just wasn't done. But he's not done. 
There's a dollop of unlikely ice cream smothering everything because this is not just any Samaritan woman. She's an outcast among outcasts. She's had multiple affairs and is currently living with a man who's not her husband. I mean, this is scandal. This is scandalous. Yet here in this place, to this woman, Jesus in John 4 has the longest conversation, the longest one-on-one conversation recorded in the Bible, and you guessed it, about a most unlikely subject. It was about worship. And it's the only time recorded where Jesus talks about worship in a big picture rather than some of the specifics which you saw on the screen a little while ago. Just as an aside here, have you ever found yourself in a, in a place where, uh, or a situation where you thought, Jesus couldn't possibly speak to me here. Jesus couldn't possibly be here right now. Not here, not now, not in the midst of all this muck. Jesus can't speak to me here. I need to get to a church or someplace where he can speak to me. Think again. Because here we are in the middle of the day on the outskirts of a town. It's broiling hot. They're at the well. And Jesus uses that well and that water to give this woman an invitation to drink his living water. I love how Jesus does this. He speaks to her where she's at and what her needs are and in a way that she can understand. It's a lesson for us all right there in that little verse. Then he tells her that he knows all about her sordid past, which clues her into the fact that Jesus must be some kind of prophet. And so she says to Jesus, okay, well, now that we're on speaking terms here, I people, the Samaritans, we're supposed to worship on a mountain. You people, you Jewish people say you're supposed to worship in the temple. Okay, spell this out. Give me the right answer here. One of us is right. One of us is wrong. Which is it? And Jesus' answer to her is in essence, it's not about the form. It's about the function. It's not about the where. It's about the who. Being a true worshiper is all about what? How would you answer that statement? Being a true worshiper is all about, what's it all about? What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman about what it means to be a true worshiper? Here's what's recorded in John chapter 4, verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. True worship, then, is not a matter of form or of ceremony. It's not just going through the motions. We're talking about a spiritual reality here. It's the involvement of the Holy Spirit giving enlightenment and illumination and guidance as we focus on seeking the truth as we look to his word. Coming to church doesn't make you a worshiper any more than going to a donut shop makes you a policeman. There has to be an authentic, honest expression of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, expressed outside. How's it expressed outside? It's expressed outside in fruit. It's expressed outside in the way that we speak. It's expressed outside in the way that we live. 
We can sing all the songs. We can pray all the prayers. We can go through all the motions and uh, be completely out of it without the Holy Spirit transforming us and empowering our worship on the inside first. You can have your hands raised in praise on the outside, but have your fist clenched in rage towards God on the inside. The question is, are you worshiping the Father in the Spirit and in truth? To worship the Spirit Worship in the spirit and in truth means it's real, means it's authentic, means it's sincere, means, frankly, that it's biblical, it's transparent, it's truthful, it's open, it's honest. Nothing is hidden, therefore. There's no pretense, there's no pretending, and more importantly to us in this day and age, there's no masks. There's no masks being worn here. It's honest worshiping openly before God, to God, and to him alone. That means you can tell God anything you're feeling or thinking when you come to him in worship. He's big enough to handle all of that. In fact, if you read the Psalms, which are basically chapters of worship from beginning to end, many of them written by David, and often David starts most of the Psalms, and he's not a happy camper. And he's telling God all about it, what's wrong, what's happening, how he's not having this or getting this or seeing this. But the very fact that he's coming to God honestly and openly means he's worshiping God. I mean, what's the point? Why bother writing the psalm in the first place if God doesn't exist? He's admitting, he's, he's acknowledging God is there in the very process of putting the psalm together. He's worshiping God. He's worshiping in the spirit and in truth. That's what the Lord says we need to do too. And I believe that Jesus was making a very, very important point here in revealing this at this particular unlikely place to this unlikely person. And I think it was a radical point if you understand the Jewish concept of worship before Jesus came. Now, this is hard for us because, of course, we're in the afterglow. We, we, we would never even think this, but I need you to kind of go back with me. Prior to Jesus, worshiping God was sort of an exclusive activity. You had to be a member of the Jewish people in order to worship God of the Bible. And there were far more rituals than most people could actually kind of keep together. And so everyone, everyone was schooled from an early age on in how to do them right, how to keep, keep doing them. The whole worship experience was then orchestrated by a priest. In fact, if you didn't have a priest, you didn't have worship. No priest, no worship. But now here comes Jesus on the scene. And Jesus says, worship is not about being in a certain place, in a certain culture, having skin of a certain color, or following a certain ritual. It's not about being in a certain place, a certain time. It's not about carrying on all these ceremonies. It's not about certain people who would be leading you, or certain songs that you would be singing. It's it's a worship that's not tied anymore to any kind of holy place, because now the holy place is you. The Holy Spirit within you now, that has become the temple. That has become the holy place. That has become the place where God is. So you can worship wherever you are. That's true worship. That's what true worship is all about. But our worship can get off track, can't it? We can have distractions. If worship is not done in spirit and in truth, then worship is not 
then we lose track of it and worship becomes casual or cheap. I'll give you a picture of this from the Old Testament. The writer of 2 Chronicles says that Solomon built the temple, filled it with things according to God's directions, filled it with things of great beauty and great value, beautiful gold everywhere, including around sort of the whole room, gold shields, just a whole number of gold, pure gold shields that were awesome to look at, that were beautiful to look at, that people, when they looked at them, were reminded of the greatness and the splendor and the goodness and the richness of God. Very costly, very costly. And Solomon intended it to be that way, and God did, obviously, who directed him. It was an expression, if you will, of the value, the worship that people placed on God. But then Solomon dies. And his son now, the grandson to David, Rehoboam, takes over. And the Bible tells us that Rehoboam abandoned the law, abandoned his devotion to God. And at one point, the king of Egypt comes in and plunders the temple. And guess what he does? He takes away these shields of pure gold. You know, people have tried to even estimate how much they're worth. It's into the hundreds of millions of dollars at least in our economy. Here's the statement, though, that we need to focus on in 2 Chronicles 12.10. It says, King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them. Do you see what's happened here? He's replaced the shields of gold and what had been costly and sacrificial with shields of bronze. Kind of had the same look if you kept polishing them. I'm sure you had guys in there all the time doing that. But so much cheaper. So much of lesser value. So much of like, let's just put on a pretense here. He didn't omit the shields. He didn't forget about the temple altogether. He just got a little more casual about the whole thing. He just replaced them with less costly things. He had a kind of casual approach to this whole worship idea. When he was in trouble, though, before his enemies, he's right back there in the temple, humbling himself before God. But when the trouble goes away, boy, is this human nature. So did his urgency about worship. We're creatures of habit, aren't we? And left to our own devices, we drift. We tend to seek comfort. But worship is not supposed to be confined or comfortable. When we encounter worship in different, a different format or a different setting or a different manner than we're used to, we feel a certain level of discomfort because it threatens our worship habits and our comfort levels. The problem is we can mistakenly interpret that discomfort as a sign that the worship is off somehow. This isn't right and therefore in some way wrong when all it is is just different. So when we're in a worship service and it runs short or long or someone's sitting in our seat or when we approach the leaders or speakers, uh, they have a little bit of an off day or for that morning they're saying something a little bit different than what we're used to, we begin to feel uncomfortable, maybe even, yes, upset. When the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, where should we worship God? There's got to be a right and a wrong here. Is it on the Samaritan place of worship, on the mountain, or is it in the... Jerusalem, and which was the right place here? Jesus explains, there's sort of not a right and wrong here. It's not about location. God's bigger than that. 
Time's going to come when people realize it's not about this mountain or that mountain or this city or that city or this church or that church. God's looking, Jesus says, for people who will worship him in the spirit and in truth. The mistake that this woman makes is that is the same thing that many of us do, and that is we think the only people who get worship right are the people who are worshiping like we do on our little mountain somewhere. But we need to evaluate what we're saying here, what we're really looking for, because if worship for us has become predictable, if worship for us has become about a certain place, a certain time, a certain approach, a certain seat, then we're not pursuing worship anymore. We're pursuing comfort, and we're confining our worship into a box somehow. And friends, there's nothing comfortable. Think about this. There's nothing comfortable about coming into the presence of the one who knows everything about us and is powerful beyond our imagination. There is nothing comfortable about coming to the God of the universe. Just ask Isaiah. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, mighty angels, calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Their glorious voices shook the temple to its foundation, and the entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. This is just the train of his robe, folks. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined. I am as good as dead. Every word I've ever spoken is tainted, and the people I live with talk the same way, using words that corrupt and desecrate. And here my eyes have seen the King. I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What's the thing that really comes clear to Isaiah? Two things, really. Isaiah sees God for who he really is. And when he sees God's holiness, he recognizes just how holy and great and awesome God is and then how incredibly different God is from him. And in the light of that, he sees himself for who he really is. He sees his sin in light of God's holiness and he responds to God. Therefore, worship is seeing God for who he really is, seeing ourselves for who we really are, and responding appropriately. Whenever we see God for who he really is, we have a much clearer picture of who we we really are, don't we? We see our shortcomings. We see our sin. And we fall before him in absolute adoration and worship because he tells us your sins are forgiven. You've been washed as white as snow. Or ask John, Jesus' best friend, When John sees the glorified Christ in Revelation, does he go, hey, Jesus, give me a high five. Nice to see you again, buddy. No, he falls on his feet as though dead. He falls at his feet. I can't even look at you. Or ask Peter. After Jesus challenges him to drop the nets and he pulls them up, those nets that were once empty, now they're brimming over with fish. And Peter all of a sudden senses he's in the presence of something holy, someone holy. He's in the presence of God. And he says, get out of here. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. We can't be in the same place. I think it's clear what happens to people when they encounter the presence of the living God. I don't think anyone in that moment is concerned about casual or comfortable worship. I think every single one is wondering, how can I even take the next breath? How can I even be in the presence of pure goodness, pure holiness, and love? 
I, th- I think that people were filled with awe and wonder and they trembled and they hoped and they feared because there, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of their life, all of a sudden there's a living God. And there's mystery and awe and frankly, life. There's so nothing comfortable about worship. And if you're pursuing comfort, you're not pursuing worship. Another kind of worship that gets us off track is a consumer or critical approach to worship. If this happens, then the focus becomes on me, my experience, and I approach worship as a consumer rather than as a worshiper. I sit back with my arms folded and I I say, wow me here, come on. Do something to grab my attention. Do something to, to, to pique my interest. Give me a good feeling at least before I go. Then I'm thinking about worship the same way I think about going to a movie, aren't I? I want to critique it afterward. I want the kind of service that I happen to like, the songs that I like, the prayers that make me feel good, the message that does this to me. If it's not, I know what I'll do. I'll withhold my heart from worship. I'll refuse to give praise and adoration to the God of the universe because I don't like something. I'll withhold my worship. I'll withhold my singing. I'll withhold my prayers. I'll withhold my giving. Maybe I'll even let other people know this worship does not meet with my requirements, my standards. Friends, I understand for all of us We go through seasons of worship where there will be times when we have thoughts like this, that some aspect that we particularly like or some aspect that we particularly don't. But I'm asking you to manage those thoughts real carefully and real prayerfully and that you come to worship in the idea that it's all about giving to God, not about consuming. See, I have this picture in my mind. This is Pearsonology. I mean, you can take this for what it's worth. But I have this picture in my mind. I picture myself standing before God and giving an account of my life, as the Bible tells us each one of us will do. I picture myself standing there before God. I wish I could see him. I can't in that picture, but I just know he's there. And he's giving, I'm giving an account of my life before him. And he stops me in mid-sentence. And he points to a time when I went critical or I went comfortable or I withheld my worship of him because of something that I let get in the way of truly wholeheartedly worshiping him. I hear him say, you mean that? Seriously, you mean that, just that? That word, that song, that tone of voice, that distraction, that noise, that person, you mean just that kept you from worshiping me? The God of the universe, that kept you from worshiping me. Let me understand this. And I'll tell you folks, at that moment, I got nothing. I've got nothing. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be that guy. I want nothing of me to get in the way of worshiping God. And I mean nothing. How about you? See, worship is not about primarily what I get out of it. It's not what worship is about. Worship is what we give to God because he is God and God alone. Period. Not because I like this place or this song or I had a good week or I got a bonus so therefore now I can spare you some change, God. 
or because you answered this prayer. It's because of who you are. I just come to worship you with all I have. See, this thing has gone on throughout all of history. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and there's factions there. He says, I hear that some of you say I belong to Paul, and some of you are saying I belong to Apollos, and others of you are saying you belong to Cephas, and it, as if you were just customers of the gospel. Pick the guy, pick the gospel. And you could just choose the particular brand of teaching or leading or singing that suited your own spiritual taste. It's not good, he says. It's destructive. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 14 to talk about how their worship had become chaotic. People doing things just to draw attention to themselves. Paul says it's got to stop, people. He says the focus of worship is God and God alone. And the minute, <laughs> no, the millisecond you let something else impede that your worship strictly of God and God alone, your worship is off track. You've been distracted. So I want to ask you, today to search your heart? Is there any kind of consumerism, any kind of sort of tainted worship going on in your spirit? Because what's behind this is, of course, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And now we know who's really number one, don't we? Last thing, last kind of worship that gets off track is worship that is cut off from your life. Worship that's disconnected from the way you walk through your days. I think this is the worst, the most serious of all. I think as you read through the prophets, this is one of the most prominent themes that keeps recurring. Isaiah says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts, uh, their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I'm going to squish these people. I've had it. No. This is our God. Look at this. This is so amazing, people. Therefore, what am I going to do? They're going all off track again. What am I going to do? Therefore, once more, I will astound them with wonder upon wonder. What a great God we have. Worship is meaningful to God only to the extent that it's a reflection of our authentic desires and intentions of our heart on a daily basis. Sometimes we will come and we will be overwhelmed by the holiness of God and driven to our knees like Isaiah and we'll just say, I'm undone, woe is me. Sometimes we'll come and we'll just be undone by the compassion of God like the sinful woman in Luke 7 when she throws herself at Jesus' feet and pours out everything she has. Sometimes we'll be seized by the joy of the Lord as David was and just dance before the Lord with all of our might. But here's one thing we will not do we will not be here as consumers. You are not a consumer of worship. You are a giver of worship. This is what we do for God. And you are primarily here as a giver of worship. Ultimately, you see, worship is not about activity. It's about authenticity. Is it real? Is it in the spirit? Is it in truth? Is it open and honest before God? Jesus says the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Let's sing and let's come back to the heart of worship. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204 
326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com. 